Welcome to Plodcast Episode 21. Plodcast Episode 21. Well, you might think to yourself, here we are. So I want to talk uh, in this episode about the meaning of privilege. I want to talk about the meaning of privilege. What you, you cannot understand the generation that we're living in unless you understand that much of our public policy debate is driven by egalitarianism and egalitarianism is driven by envy. Um, The alternative to envy is gratitude and gratitude thanks God for what uh, it receives from God and and, and rejoices in that and is not chafed or upset if somebody else gets more. Right, so if someone has more money than I do, or if someone's smarter than I am, or so, if someone is better looking than I am, and so on, uh, it ought it, I have no grievance against them. Uh, this is why um, the the Bible has in the in the Ten Commandments the tenth word, the tenth commandment is this: You shall not covet. You shall not want someone else's privilege you shall not desire your neighbor your neighbor's privilege Uh, and that privilege is exhibited in his house in his driveway in his manicured lawn in his wife in his maidservant in his manservant in his you know in his red convertible whatever it is that he's got that exhibits his privilege Uh, we as christians are commanded not to covet it we are now coveting is um, different than simply saying, oh, that's a, uh, how, how do you like that car? How's it working out for you? We're, we're shopping for a, a car to do similar, similar things. It's not, to, it's not coveting to compare and it's not, uh, coveting to get a recommendation from a friend about a particular product. That's not coveting. Coveting is when the envy, uh, envy has you by the throat and you think that there's something wrong with the world because he has that there's something wrong with the world and 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 envy goes a step further envy says and if he if if i can't have it then he must not have it i i will settle for destroying his possession of it even if i can't possess it myself now um, egalitarianism envy drives egalitarianism and egalitarianism drives much of our public policy debate Egalitarianism uh, uh, drives our our discussion of economics, for example. Um, people talk about the one percent. You know, so the one percent get um, all this money. How come? How how come? Uh, why why do the one percent get 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 to keep all the keep all the cash? Well, the, many of the people who object to the one percent in North America, who have all that money fail to recognize that globally considered they are part of the one percent so um <laughs> what we have to realize is that god gives gifts unevenly um god does not have apparently god does not apparently have any sense of obligation to give everybody exactly the same amount of smarts or the same amount of cash or the same amount of uh, opportunity or the same God just doesn't function that way uh, so uh, when we when we treat 
someone else's privilege as an injustice committed against us rather than considering it as a blessing that we thank God that they that we we thank God that that blessing was given to them or if the blessing was given to us we thank God for it and because we consider it to be entirely a good thing we want to share again first Timothy 6 God says uh, those who are rich in this present world should be generous and ready to share but if privilege if economic privilege if uh, you know there's there are people who say um, if you've learned math if you learn math that's a privilege and we ought to stop teaching math because it's it's too white or something right or if your parents stayed together if your parents kept their vows to one another that gives you an unfair advantage well wait is it a good thing or a bad thing is it a good thing when a man and a woman make vows to each other and then keep them yes it's a good thing it's an entirely a good thing uh, is it a good thing for their children yes it's a good thing for their children do other children not have that good thing yes there are children who are scrambled because of how their parents quarrel and fight and break up and and you know they're their children who really are hurt by that but the bible tells us to tackle this problem by being grateful for our privileges and be and and it requires us to be uh, eager to share those privileges so you cultivate a good marriage and you do everything in your power to encourage others to learn how to have a good marriage as well you but if if privilege if wealth if advantage if, if any advantage you might have is um, basically uh, <laughs> a crime or a, a sin against others you ought to feel bad about it you ought to feel guilty for it um, that privilege you have is sort of an economic or a sexual or a marital or a familial cancer well why sh why would you share it then if I get cancer why would I want to give it to anybody else but if I've if I've received good health and I've got a good income and I've got uh, a wonderful family and I've got these things doesn't doesn't privilege doesn't the Christian approach to privilege mean that I ought to be grateful for what I have and if I give any of it away I should be giving it away out of gratitude not giving it away out of guilt and yet even in Christian circles we have this hidden subtext that that wants to say that there's something wrong with you right there's something wrong with you if you have something that other people don't have um, I remember many years ago reading an article where a man well, he was he was I think reading about uh, some war-torn uh, part of the world and he then went upstairs and tucked his little girl into bed and he walked away from that feeling genuinely feeling and arguing in this article that he ought to have felt guilt he was he felt guilty because his daughter or son whoever it was was uh, safe and comfortable and went to bed well fed guilt <laughs> guilt if you feel guilty for what god has given you you are ungrateful you are just you're just simply an ingrate of course you ought not to feel guilty um, if if someone said 
Do you feel guilty that your kids grew up in an intact home? Do you feel guilty that you were able to feed your kids throughout their childhood? Do you feel guilty that you were able to work hard and provide them with an education? I'd say no, no, no. I don't feel guilty for any one of those things. Those are the things I was commanded by God to do. I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done what I was told to do. Is it Luke, Luke 17. Guilt? Yeah. Uh, Obeying God doesn't make you guilty. Now, if you stop there, if you rake together a pile of blessings and you huddle you know, in the shadow of that pile of blessings and you are tight-fisted and you refuse to share with anybody else, yes, you ought to feel guilty about that. You ought to feel guilty about your lack of generosity. God, is, God has been so generous to you. Why wouldn't you want to imitate him and be generous to others? Um, so when you're flipping through the pages of evangelical magazine and you come to, you know, a picture of a starving child and the and the ad copy says you could say you could give this kid a meal for just pennies a day, um, or you could j- turn the page, parentheses you jerk. Right? If the appeal is being made to you on the basis of that kind of guilt, you could. You could do something uh, and not notice, and, and, and it wouldn't even put you out. And yet, you, in your criminal conceit, are uh, refusing to go on, re- refusing to donate. You're going to give, and you're going to give out of guilt. But when someone gives out of guilt, what is that going to be? Well, generally, I would say twenty bucks. You're going to give if you're giving out of guilt. You're going to give just enough. To make the guilt go away and when you give just enough to make the guilt go away that'll transfer translate out to 20 bucks if however you give because you are so stinking grateful for all the things god has given you and you think that the things that you have are so wonderful and god's um, god has been so kind to give them to you that not only do you want to receive the gifts that he's given, but you want to become more and more like him. You want to imitate him in that kindness. That means that God, out of his wealth, gave you things. And that means out of the things you've received, you want to give those things to others. And so you give them to others, imitating God. When you give that way, when you're giving out of gratitude, how much do you give? Well, I don't know exactly, but it's way more than 20 bucks. So we come to come now to our little book plug, our book review, and this <clears throat> this episode, I want to commend um, uh, the book um, by uh, Talib. Uh, the book is called Anti Fragile. I don't know if it's Talib or Talib or T A L E B. It's something that those letters signify. So uh, he wrote the Black Swan. He wrote um, Fooled by Randomness. Um, I just finished Anti-Fragile the other day and want to recommend it to you. It is a very good book. Now, you have to, you have to put on your hip waders and work through it. There's some, there's some dense uh, reasoning in there. And there are also uh, patches of what I would call dogmatic bombast, where uh, he gets off into um, certain, um, some of his pet peeves and he just goes off on them and you and he's the he's the kind of personality who um it is said uh, sometimes wrong never in doubt so he he is um a very he he's a contrarian and he pronounces um 
confidently on anything under the sun. It, do, it just doesn't matter. Um, but on the central thesis of the book, um, I think he's exactly right. And this book is, is just pure gold when it, when it comes to this basic thesis. What, is, what does he mean by anti-fragile? So um, ba- basically what it boils down to is this. And he's, he's talking about families, uh, corporations, businesses, uh, different um, uh, systems. And an anti-fragile system is one that thrives in a volatile environment. Um, a fragile system is one that predicts, um, enforces, tries to maintain long periods of um, placid stability. And then in between these two, are, he has a robust uh, uh, entity. So you've got fragile, anti-fragile on the other end, and then robust. Uh, and of course, um, when he says the environment is volatile, he's, he's always careful to qualify it and say within limits, right? If, uh, if uh, the earth were struck by a giant comet, that would introduce volatility into the systems. And it would also take out all of the systems, the fragile, the robust, and the anti-fragile systems alike. So he's he's talking about uh, a, a particular specified range. So take what you would ordinarily think of as a uh, volatile environment and take what you would think of as a very stable, calm environment. He argues and demonstrates and shows that health... Um, anti-fragility is dependent upon having to deal with all the all the uh, complications that arise in a in a volatile environment if something is huge monolithic stable everything is calm he is saying that that entity may look like it's never going anywhere but he argues and shows that these such entities are oftentimes very fragile because they they are not used to any kind of um, volatility at all and if and if any uh, particular uh, thing is introduced that they can't handle they it the whole thing comes down so um, these are not his examples but a couple of examples that occurred to me Um, uh, one was the collapse of the soviet union Uh, the soviet union when I, i grew up in the cold war and the soviet union was this monolithic reality it was never going to be going anywhere. Um, it seemed stable, and that it was just a fact of life. And and I remember seeing a magazine article in National Review that predicted the coming crack up of the Soviet Union, and that article just seemed like crazy talk. It was just absolute crazy talk. But then, when the Soviet Union came down, it came down in such a way as to reveal the fragility of the system. It didn't come down the way a mountain, a stable mountain might disappear uh, because it eroded over the course of millennia. Uh, uh, The Soviet Union came down like a a house of cards. So uh, there's a, and when a house of cards comes down, you can say that's fragile uh, and see that it's, and, and you could see at a glance that it's fragile. The, the, a person walks into the room and he sees the, the stack of the house of cards. 
he sees right away that it's fragile. But there are other systems, and this is the value of Taleb's uh, work, is that he says there are uh, many systems that look like they are the very opposite of a house of cards, but they are just as fragile as a house of cards. All right, so that, that's one example. Another example that occurred to me was um, a medieval Christendom prior to the Reformation. Medieval Christendom looked like it, it had been uh, stable for years. It was, everything was settled. It was all predictable. The systems were down, and yet it was fragile. The Reformation, uh, uh, it went up. So when the Reformation happened, it went up in a sheet of flame. So, you, um, so according to this book, he, and he shows this a number of ways, in a volatile environment, anti-fragile systems thrive. Um, robust systems do fine, and fragile systems expire. Fragile systems come apart in, vol in, in volatile environments. And if an organization needs a stable environment in order to survive, they're doing something wrong. Anyway, I commend it to you, anti-fragile. All right, hamartiology. We are continuing to look at words that the New Testament uses, Greek words that the New Testament uses to describe various sins or sinful uh, attitudes. And we come now to eiskrologia. Um, Paul, uh, th <clears throat> this basically means filthy communication. Um, the Apostle Paul took a dim view of dirty talk. Uh, and this word is used in Colossians 3.8. Uh, in Colossians 3.8, he uses the word iskrologia to prohibit filthy communication. Now, a couple of episodes ago, we, uh, uh, we talked about a, a similar word that is used in Ephesians 5.4, uh, talking about the same thing, talking about the same basic thing, uh, filthy communication, corrupt talk, dirty talk. Now, um, at that time, when we were uh, a couple of episodes ago, we noted that we need to take our direction on this from the robust apostles and not from the prim Victorians. Now, here's the question: Where might the line be? be uh, where might the line be between speech uh, that one or the other might prohibit? So, the apostle prohibits certain speech, and and a Victorian prude would would prohibit certain speech. I, I think that a simple rule that would deal with most of the issues would be this one. Avoid all speech that is trying to be dirty in the way prohibited. Speech that depends upon and needs the shock effect. Um, so let's, um, let's imagine that we had, no, uh, we had a world in which there were no taboos, no prohibitions. You could, you could talk about absolutely anything with no shame or embarrassment or awkwardness at all. There was no such thing as a dirty word. There was no such thing as obscene talk. There was no such thing as off-limit to uh, off topics. Let's say, verbally speaking, we lived in a world with no boundaries whatever. There were no boundaries. In, in such a world, someone might point out, it would be impossible to sin, right? You, you couldn't sin verbally in a world that had no verbal law, right? But 
And you might say, well, that would sure make the prudes unhappy. Well, I think it would make the dirty joke tellers even more unhappy. In other words, uh, people who want to speak in a corrupt way want to violate standards of propriety. They need a standard of propriety in order to transgress it. That's where they're getting. That's where they're getting their um, their charge. Right? That's where they're getting their um, um, their high. They 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 like going across the border. They like transgressing the boundary. So uh, when people tell stories in order to shock Christians ought to say oh, all right I can tell where that line is and I want to stay well away from that line if someone is simply um, you know they're not trying to shock anything at all you everybody's been in um, in the position where moving from one culture to another um, uh, one culture might be a bit earthier than the previous culture there are differing standards of decorum going from one culture to another. So um, a Dutch pig farmer might have an earthier way of expressing things than um, someone who was brought up in a Victorian drawing room. And both of them could be equally moral, right? But uh, the Dutch pig farmer who has these earthy expressions is not using them in order to to shock anybody. He's not trying to violate any standard of decorum. He's trying to get you to clean out the barn, shovel out the barn, and he's talking about the job that needs to be done. He's, he's not trying to shock. But when uh, a stand-up comedian is telling a dirty joke, he's telling a dirty joke because he knows there's a boundary and he wants to go across it. And the Christian is prohibited by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.4 and in Colossians 3.8, the Christian is prohibited from going across boundaries that way. It's not, uh, not permitted, not allowed. The Apostle says, no, uh, no corrupt talk, no filthy, no coarse jesting, nothing of that kind at all. So what's the intent? What's the standard? If the, if the desire is to shock, if the desire is to offend, if the de desire is to violate a standard of propriety, then Christians don't do it. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.